As I said at the beginning of the meeting, um, it's the summer series, so we're taking a break from the, the preaching team having to preach and the worship team having to lead worship. Um, so this morning we're going to watch Dr. Ed Stetzer, or listen to him, watch him speak to us. It's from the Vineyard Leaders Gathering earlier on this year up in Trent uh, Vineyard in Nottingham. Um, he is an amazing speaker. He's not preaching, and he'll tell you that. He's teaching. Um, so it's, I ask you just to pay attention because he does speak fairly quickly, and there's a lot that he speaks about. So it's quite intense, but it's going to be something that's going to touch you, and I trust bless you and help you to grow in your walk. So let's um, sit attentively, not sit back, but sit attentively and listen, watch him speak. Good to see everybody. Good to be here. While you were doing the introduction and you mentioned my education, Eleanor Mumford began to laugh. And so that kind of hurt my feelings. And, uh, but that's all right. That's all right. I'm, I'm just going to receive it as some word from the Lord. I don't know quite what it means. Uh, so a couple of things. So first, I'm not preaching a sermon. I've been asked to do a seminar. So lower your expectations. Right? We already heard a sermon. Matter of fact, I've got a new rule. I am never going to preach after Charles Montgomery. That's... You don't, you don't want that. You don't want that. It's now in my writer that I am not speaking for him. Never preach after Charles Montgomery. So I'm presenting, not preaching, right? I like both. In my fact, I just preached Sunday at Kensington Temple down in London. I love being in the UK. We, Don and I actually lived here for, we call it the fall, you call it the autumn. Uh, we lived here for, uh, for the last few months, and I lived at Oxford and taught there at Wycliffe College at Oxford University and got to know that's where we had the privilege of being with the Vineyard Leadership Team, had a wonderful day with them. And uh, so I, well, I'm going to talk some about the cultural moment. I, I'm a missiologist. My PhD is in the area of mission. My job is to look at, analyze, and help Christians engage culture. And we all have sort of acknowledged that we're living in turbulent and tumultuous times. We're looking for labels to describe it. We're looking for ways to understand it. We're looking for ways to walk through it. And we recognize that the world around us is in a challenging moment. We can talk about the cultural division. We can talk about the confusion of who we are. We can talk about the cost of living crisis. We can talk about war in Europe. We can talk about all of these things. But in the midst of all this, we also know that God is at work. And so today I want to talk about a post-COVID cultural disruption, a post-COVID cultural disruption, and look at three ongoing realities that will help us think about the cultural moment. Now, I want to begin with a quote. It goes like this, the darker the world gets, the brighter the gospel shines. So my ambition for all the churches, and certainly for the vineyard churches, is just more. I want more churches. I want more leaders to train, which we love to do. I want more ministry to the poor, more praying in the streets. I want to see more souls saved, more bodies healed, more brokenhearted people put together, more marriages restored, more children. I think we're just long for more of the kingdom that God would use the church. I'm not preaching, I'm presenting. That was actually a quote from John Wright, by the way. Because I think ultimately that in moments like this, the moment we're in does not pause the mission we're on. And so what does it look like in a tumultuous and turbulent time to live on mission, to be extending God's kingdom everywhere, together, and in every way? What does it look like for that to be real for us? 
Now, we all feel that we've been through a time of shaking, right? Remember, the writer of Hebrews talks about so that 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 cannot be shaken may remain. So we're in a time of shaking. We've been feeling that. We've been feeling that in the culture, in the nation, in our churches as more. Now, I'm going to talk about three things, but I want to kind of begin by helping to frame a little bit of all that's going on around us. This is not the main focus, but just some introductory matter. By the way, almost everything that I talk about today, I've written about if you're interested in, right? I've, I, I'm the editor of a magazine, so I basically have no unpublished thoughts. Um, so, so, so if you're interested in learning more about these things, like for example, I'm gonna talk about how we've been walking through a type of six pandemics, not a pandemic, but six pandemics. If you Google that phrase in my name, you can read the article I wrote in my editor's column for Outreach Magazine. But you see, here's part of the reality, right? We're kind of feeling that. We know that we've come through this moment, this season of COVID, and that's certainly been something everyone has talked about and has impacted greatly. But I think it's impacted in ways that I don't think we could have imagined because for 2,000 years, Christians have actually walked through times of plague and mass illness and more. But in the 2,000 years of church history, we've actually never shut everything down. Now, now don't misunderstand. I'm not, you might say, well, Ed, do you have an opinion on that? Well, again, I have a, no unpublished thought, but I'm not here to share my opinions on all those things. Here's what I want you to hear is that something different did take place because of how we addressed and responded to the pandemic before us. But so, so we, we have a pandemic and we see a pandemic of disease, but we also see a pandemic of distrust in culture in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetime. A growing sense of distrust of what's going on, how people are responding to one another, a growing sense of distrust towards politicians, towards people of different ethnicities and backgrounds, towards people of different ideologies and worldviews. We feel the distrust around us in culture. There's a pandemic of damage from technology. Uh, the reality is, is these things that we hold in our hands have caused so much wonderful things to happen Right? We can watch messages and share technology and share the good news of the gospel. And we know that teenage girls are at the highest depression rate the more they engage in social media. We know that these realities come from some of the damage that comes from technology. Matter of fact, it's not just that, but it's also uh, because of technology for just in, in, in one moment, you can have a crisis in your church or in your movement because of a, a tweet or a Facebook post that suddenly appears and now you're in an emergency staff meeting. The technology around us has changed how we do ministry, how we engage with one another. That's a pandemic of sorts. There's a, a pandemic of disorientation in identity. People are unsure who they are. You might immediately hear gender identity, but I would say it's broader than that, but certainly includes that. There's a sense that people are unsure who they are and who they want to be. From discussions about national identity, uh, particularly we could see here in the UK. From discussions about who we are racially, ethnically, and culturally. From discussions about who we are with gender identity and more. We're living in a time when people have never been more unsure of who they are. Talking about a pandemic of a disruption to mental health. We won't know for decades, but we already see some of the impact that the last few years have had on the next generation. People struggling with issues of mental health and an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to show and share the love of Jesus in a world that's increasingly experienced a pandemic of disruption to mental health. And also too, sadly, it's led to increasing division in churches. 
a pandemic, a division in churches. Not every church has experienced that, but we find churches and movements often now unsure how to relate to one another. There's been a disruption that's there. These are the realities that are before us. I see some of you taking pictures of my slides. Did I give you permission for that? <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> but again, you can also read it at the magazine article pretty easily. Um, so, but, and for free, by the way, I'm not trying to sell you a magazine. Uh, but but so, so, so here's the reality, though. In times of cultural disruption, we often find great gospel impact and great Holy Spirit power. And so how do we look at these times of cultural disruption? And if we're walking through one that's uniquely so, how does it impact us? Peter Wagner has described the vineyard as being part of the third wave. You may have heard the language. Let me remind you of wave one and wave two. So wave one is the Pentecostal movement that was birthed, probably if you look back to Azusa, some claims before that, but to Azusa Street. But Azusa Street's followed by a great cultural disruption in the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. Things like the Welsh revival flowed out of that as well. And from that, we see a movement where the Holy Spirit comes down in this little place on North Bonnie Bray Street that later moves over to Azusa Street, and we see a great revival or outpouring that today would claim 600 million adherents around the world. The fastest growing movement in the history of global Christianity began in the midst of a tumultuous and turbulent time. And we could fast forward to the charismatic movement. I came to faith in Christ in the charismatic movement of the Anglican tradition. Heard the good news of the gospel there. Where did that come from? Came from some of the turbulence and tumult of the 60s in the U.S. and into the 70s. And those people, I heard the gospel a little bit later, but they were kind of washed over and worn out hippies from 10 years earlier, shared the gospel with me, and they came to Christ in the tumult of the 60s and the 70s. And the vineyard movement bubbles up soon thereafter that, right? We know the history, right? But we, we, we begin to talk about the third wave that, that holds the outworking and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, functioning and working in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but without some of the traditional Pentecostal and charismatic distinctives. And so on Mother's Day 1980, Lonnie Frisbee's there at a meeting. You can watch it on YouTube if you're interested. He, like we did last night, called forward for the young people to come up and begin to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Mother's Day 1980 begins, but the 80s are a tumultuous time here in this nation. Now, please don't misunderstand. And listen charitably as I do. I recognize the last thing you want to hear as an American give you advice about just about anything. I get that. <laughs> Let me tell you how great evangelicalism is going in my country, and I'll come share that with you right here. Let me tell you about the politics. We're doing great. Yeah, don't believe anything about that. But tumultuous times often produce Holy Spirit movements. So in the UK, from 1982, the Falklands War, the miners' strike in 1984, the financial crisis and challenges of the Big Bang in 1986, and all of these elections in 86, and then leading into 87, and then South London Vineyard is founded in 1987. And it was good to see the Mumfords as well, even though you laughed at my introduction. And... Uh, <laughs> Is deeply wounded. But John, you did pray for me, and I appreciate that. Now, that is because I, I have the privilege of one of the marking moments of my life is when, when John Wimber laid his hands on me and prayed for me and shared a word with me. And moments ago, John Mumford prayed for me and laid his hands on me and gave a word for me. And so now, I, and what's the deal with all the Johns in the movement, by the way? <laughs> I mean, John, 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 you prayed for me when we were at Oxford, so 
technically I've been prayed for with by first, second, and third John. That's gonna stick, isn't it, right there, you're welcome. Just call him third John all the time, and uh, that's gonna stick. <laughs> Andy McSmith, who was chief reporter and former political correspondent for the independent newspaper, argues that the 1980s in the UK was a defining decade. He quote, quote, more change and more conflict were crammed into the 80s than any other decade in the second half of the 20th century, speaking specifically in the UK context. In the midst of that tumult and turbulence, churches are birthed and the South London vineyard multiplies. And here we are today, hundreds of us making much of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Turbulent and tumultuous times produce opportunities for the advance of the gospel. So I said there were three things and I gave you six, but that's just the introduction. So let's talk about the three. So the three things I want to really look at today is can connect these things, how they come from, uh, come from the cultural moment. The first thing is I want to talk about cultural disruption around our cultural convulsion. So every few decades, cultures, contexts, nations, communities, uh, world, the world itself, the globe itself, tend to go through times when everything gets overturned. When people question the sources where they gain information and knowledge, they, they question their alliances and their allegiances, and we call that a cultural convulsion. I believe we're walking through a cultural convulsion like that today. Now, cultural convulsions, sometimes people might say, well, this became very convulsed because of COVID, and it did, but there were things that were preceding that. You know, we, I mean, the Brexit debate precedes. All, there's all kinds of things that happen in and around these times, but all of a sudden, with COVID, things became accelerated and amplified, and we felt it more. So people, you, we might have thought, well, the cultural convulsion sort of ends as we move on to whatever phase and stage. If I say something like COVID is done, someone will come up afterwards and want to explain to me how it's not done. And I understand everybody's mad about these things and, and everyone debates these things. And I get it. I need you to listen to the American theologian Taylor Swift for just a moment. I need you to, I need you to calm down. Right? Even as you listen to me say, well, I would have said that differently. That's fine. Just kind of, again, listen charitably. But, but, here's, but here's the reality, right? So the cultural convulsion isn't a reality of the pandemic. The cultural convulsion was just accelerated and amplified by the pandemic because cultural convulsions don't just last during the season of that. I wish I could say that the cultural convention, convulsion ends as, as COVID has gone away or lessened. I wish I could say that it ends. But the reality is when we look at the past, these cultural convulsions tend to last four, six, seven years rather than two or three years. And so, in particularly places like the 60s, which, of course, lost the Jesus People movement, which on the tail end of that would launch the Vineyard movement, but it was actually in the, in the late 60s. In the late 60s, some of the greatest tumult and turbulence in the North American context was there. 1968 in particular, right, in my nation, we saw Martin Luther King assassinated on April 4th. We saw Bobby Kennedy assassinated. We saw, we saw civil rights protests. We saw anti-war protests. We saw, we saw riots. We saw, we, there was even a pandemic that year. Millions of people around the world got what they called then the Hong Kong flu. Today, we call it, I actually don't remember the, uh, the specific label we'd call it today, but all around the world, right? Now, again, they didn't shut everything down. Oddly, in 1968, they started planting Woodstock for 1969, which seems to me a strange way to slow the spread of any disease, but that's another <laughs> story for another day. And in 1968, a pastor in California asked his daughter to bring home a 
hippie so he could meet a hippie. And she brought home somebody by the name of Lonnie Frisbee that would show up at Mother's Day 1980 at the Anaheim Vineyard. But they came and began the Jesus People movement that still shapes much of what we are today. Cultural convulsions are often connected with spiritual outpourings. And we're walking through one. Doesn't mean it's easy, right? So we're going to walk through this cultural convulsion. We're going to need reservoirs of resilience. If 2019, you were entering to 2020 without already reservoirs of resilience, you found very quickly your spiritual resources depleted. But now we've learned we've got to create a new pace and pattern where reservoirs of resilience are normative in our life and practices, going deeper, more of the Spirit of God at work in our lives. And we need communities of support. That's why I'm convinced that movements, not just churches, not just Christians, not just pastors, movements are going to be more, not less important in the years to come because we need one another in the midst of a cultural convulsion. So we're in a cultural convulsion. We're also in what I call a season of a great sort. It's a great sort. And I use the term to sort of describe and define that people are sorting themselves out ideologically, and even sometimes in churches where before they sorted themselves out, maybe theologically, maybe spiritually. But in the great sort, people are actually finding themselves wanting to be with people who are more like them. And where in the past we might stand up before a church service and say, thank God that people of all these different perspectives and backgrounds are here. Today it's become a little bit harder as people are sorting themselves out a bit more. And certainly technology is a part of that. Let me show you a very famous piece of technology. It changed the world in many ways. Here's a picture of it here. It's actually a, it's actually a pipe. It doesn't look very technological to you, but it's actually a pipe. It's a couple thousand years old, and this pipe made it possible for the Romans in the city of Rome, at the peak of the Roman Empire, to actually have hot and cold running water in the villas of the rich. It was quite a, quite a thing, this idea that there would be hot and cold running water. It might surprise you, but a million people lived in Rome. And after Rome fell and shrunk at one point to under 50,000 people, there wasn't another city in the West with a million people until London in the 1700s. So it was a technological marvel, and technology like that made all the difference. That's a pipe. It's from a metal that they made slash discovered. And, and, and this metal they would take, and what was remarkable about this metal, that it was malleable, moldable, foldable. So you can actually see that it's metal that has been molded and folded into a pipe. It's, you can see that if you look closely at the pipe, it's not welded because welding didn't exist, but it's folded over. And so this metal, because it was foldable and moldable and malleable, they could make all kinds of things about, from it. They made plates out of it that they ate from and bowls that they ate from and, and cups that they drank from. And it was amazing and, and hot and cold running water. It was, it was the peak of an amazing technology that was actually built from a metal called lead. And there are some consequences when everything you drink from and eat from and your water flows through is lead. In fact, some historians, it's not a mainstream view. Some historians have talked about some of the, the madness that would actually overtake the Roman leaders could have been from this lead poisoning. But here's the reality, right? I mean, they were eating from it and drinking from it. It was feeding them and killing them at the same time. And 2,000 years later, I think what we hold in our hands is feeding us and killing us at the same time. 
And the reality is one of the things, not the only things, one of the things it's doing, it's sorting people into relationships away from people who are different than them. And I don't know about you, but one of the things I love about the vineyard is the diversity of men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The diversity that's even expressed here that points to what that Revelation 7 vision will look like. Men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, if you're here and you don't like a multi-ethnic church, you're really gonna hate heaven. (laughs) And I know you wouldn't be here if you didn't have a passion for that anyway, but here's the reality. We've gotta push against the great sword because what unites us is not the ideologies of the world, but the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm doing a presentation, I'm not preaching. (laughs) Another thing I want us to look at, three things, our cultural convulsion, the great sort. Number three is our layers of disengagement and re-engagement, right? Our layers of disengagement and re-engagement. So clearly, we've experienced around the world disruptions to the patterns of life in church. Some of you are not back to your pre-COVID attendance. Some of you are, and some of you are exceeding your pre-COVID attendance. Our research is a bit mixed at this point because people are still shifting. One of the strange things that has come from this is actually it's been a season when many people have actually switched churches. So we're experiencing a sense that, and when we kind of look at that, I just came back from Australia. I was in Australia for a month, and we did some analysis and some conversations that are there, and we see some patterns. I'll share them briefly with you and then talk about what they look like. But some of the patterns seem to be that during the last few years, some people got more engaged and more involved, which is an interesting thing, right? Some people in the midst of the cultural convulsion, in the midst of the pandemic, they stood up, they stood out, they stood in the gap. They joined Jesus on mission at a greater level. Now, what percentage? Well, some of the observation that we're talking about, and, and again, it's, it's different in different places. It may not be your experience, but it is the experience of many, is sometimes I've divided the churches into thirds, right? So uh, one of the things that I, I love about, I, I mentioned I was at, um, I was at Kensington Temple on Sunday, and that's a, that's a Pentecostal church, you know, part of the, the Elam Pentecostal movement. And one of the things I love about uh, Pentecostals, um, so many things, is, but I love how Pentecostals sit at church. I've never preached at a vineyard church, so I don't know if you do this or not, and if you don't, you should. Let me tell you what they do, though. So, um, so they actually, the most engaged and involved people sit up front. Now, in my denominational tradition, the most engaged and involved people sit in the back, which is wrong and sinful at so many levels. <laughs> Because if you're preaching, you want the most engaged and involved people right there. When you're singing, you want people up front. And that's what it was like on Sunday when I preached. So let's take a typical church of a 1,000 people, right? So um, I don't know how many, how many, stay with me, stay, I picked a 1,000 on purpose. Because I'm guessing there's, what, at least 3,000 people here right now, right? Because Americans, we just round up to the nearest 1,000. So... Stay with me. I'm just kidding. Um, But let's say a typical church of 100 people, because this is too big of a room for that. But let's say a typical church of 100 people. The typical church in the UK is under 100 in attendance. You might be surprised to know the typical church in the United States is under 100 in attendance. Stop watching all these things on television that make all American churches look big. 
the typical church in America is under 100 attendance, and the UK church, typical church, is about 15 people less per week and under 100 in attendance. Anyway, that being said, so take a church of 100. So the front third on a given Sunday, 33 people, if they're, if they're seated like a Pentecostal church, right, those are the most involved people. In the last few years, it appears many of them got more involved. They actually gave more. One of the surprises for many of you is that you're giving, not all of you, but that your giving has gone up in the last few years, even if your attendance went down for a while or still is. So the front third got more engaged, more involved. The second third have sort of stayed similarly engaged. Some have actually maybe disconnected, some loosely, um, some have stayed connected. The back third of the church, however, to me is a cause for pretty great concern. Let me explain why. So a typical church of 100, right, a little larger than the average church in the UK and the US, typical church of 100, on a given Sunday, 33 people would be in the back third. But in my categorization, they'd all sit this way. Those people are the loosest involved, the least connected to the life of the church. They are loosely connected. So they might come Christmas, Easter, and three, five, 11 other times in a given year. So that 33 people on a given Sunday probably represents 120 people who sort of rotate in and out. And you know who I'm talking about. There are people who come to mind probably in your church. Maybe they're your family members who you see a few times per year. So it appears, particularly in the English-speaking Western world, it's been a different experience in Africa, it's been a different experience in parts of Asia, but in the English-speaking Western world, the biggest shift in church engagement, disengagement, and re-engagement has actually been in the back third of the church. Remember, the front third has gotten often more engaged, more involved, second third stayed steady, but the back third, who were loosely connected people, are where most of the disconnection has actually come. In other words, loosely connected people have sometimes become mostly disconnected and even permanently disconnected from the life of the church. So those are some shifts that we're actually seeing, right? Layers of engagement and re-engagement. What does that mean? I think it means there's an opportunity for us to go engage those missing people before it's too late. Now, it's never too late for the Spirit of God to be at work. But here's the reality. We don't want to miss what God is doing. We actually have a significant number of people in the last few years who are more engaged and more involved. Let's normalize that. Now, here's the deal. I don't know what the future of the church in the UK is. I don't know what the future of the church in the English-speaking Western world is. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I actually work at a nonprofit organization. (laughs) So I don't know, but at the same time, We can acknowledge the disruptive patterns, but also say that those disruptive patterns often point to a hopeful outcome. Disruptions, turbulence, and tumult often cause people to look to Jesus. And I'm convinced that too many historically have missed what God is doing. See, remember that the Pentecostal movement, when it was an outbreak in the early 1900s, that was not the mainstream of the church. Remember that the charismatic movement that exploded into the mainline churches and eventually more broadly into independent charismatic churches, that was not the mainstream of the church. Remember when the vineyard churches began here, they were outside of the mainstream of the church. And here we are in 2023, and in many ways, this is the mainstream of the church. 
So the question then becomes is how will we respond to what God's doing here? And it's multifaceted, right? It's multifaceted because right now to see what God has done in the vineyard is a powerful thing. But one of the challenges that we know is that those who are most successful in the last paradigm often have the most difficulty in the next because they're not ready to see sometimes how God is at work in a fresh new way. So there's generational challenges, right? There's, 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 there's engaging and equipping, as we saw last night, the next generation, right? God's doing a new thing. He's raising up new people. We can honor those who came before and raise up a next generation who goes from here. I like what Debbie Wright talked about after she left the Asbury Revival. She said, I leave with such anticipation, thrilled by the thought of a generation consecrated before the Lord just old enough and independent enough to respond and act on the call of God, young enough to take risks, the the risk necessary for the advancement of the kingdom of God in unprecedented ways. Amen, Debbie, I agree. See, I also believe that the Vineyard Church is uniquely prepared for the mission. Now, here's the deal. You might think this is what I say to every group that I speak to. (laughs) It's not not the case. Um, I've always been a frustrated Vineyard member. Um, when I was 20 years old, this is a true story. This is not a preacher story. This actually happened. So, um, (laughs) too soon? Was that, I don't know. I didn't want to, nothing about you, Charles. Just nothing about you. Uh, nothing, nothing. (laughs) When I was 20 years old, felt God's call to be a church planter. Had the privilege of planting six churches, um, wrote a letter to the Vineyard National Office in the U.S. that I want to be a church planner. How can I be a church planner? And they never responded. <laughs> I told them that when I spoke to their national leadership a few years ago in the U.S. And they still haven't responded to that letter. Um... <laughs> come on, here I come to the U.K. Come on, Debbie, I received that. Come on. I'm presenting, not preaching. Listen, um, but I believe that in a moment like this, a passion for evangelism and service wedded together as a vineyard has modeled, especially a passion for church planting with a key view of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, which always been so central to the movement, are key for the future. So I want to encourage you, right? I want to encourage you. I recognize that every movement sort of gets used to itself, but you have a unique gifting and anointing to be at work in particular and special ways in the UK and Ireland. And I wanna encourage you to stir up the gift that God has for you and in you and seize this cultural moment for the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. So when Southwest London Vineyard started in 1987, John and Eleanor gathered with a small group of people. Um, but also impact, even, even on the website of the church, it still says they gathered with a small group of people to see how following Jesus could make a difference, not only into their lives, but also to the lives of the people across the city and indeed the nation. Sisters and brothers, it's that kind of passion that's going to impact Ireland and the UK today. So the DNA is there and right. The challenge is, what does it look like generation after generation? And what does it look like if we're walking through a tumultuous time that unlike anything most of us have seen in our lifetime. Because we recognize, we feel some of the challenges that are there before us. We see it, for example, in the headwinds and the tailwinds of culture. Um, 
let me give you some examples that may help. So you know, I flew over here on, um, on Friday. I wanted to get a little rest before I just came here to the meeting. Coming to Nottingham is always fun because Americans, the Americans, we don't know a lot about the UK, but we know about the Sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> that's, that's the one thing that we know. So I was actually, I was in Nottingham uh, when, I, when I was living in the UK uh, this, this autumn, and I came up here and I spoke to a uh, HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton group, that kind of a regional group up here. And so, uh, so Donna, my wife, she didn't come with me this time, but she was like, well, you know, you got to tell them you're, you're going to come see the sheriff because that's the only, we just don't know a lot. Um, so, so, but I knew that I'd fly, land at Heathrow. Uh, I was actually up at Oxford yesterday doing some things there. And they graciously picked me up and brought me over here and finally got to Nottingham. Uh, it was raining uh, yesterday like it rained every single day. We were here in the autumn. Um, something I got to adjust to. Uh, but, um, but, but, you know, when I, it's interesting because when I, when I fly over, um, it's actually strange that it actually takes me, uh, depending on the flight, my flight can be an hour longer or shorter based upon the headwinds and the tailwinds, right? So the headwinds are when your plane is, winds coming at your plane, and it could take an hour longer to get from Chicago to, to, to Heathrow. Um, and, and, you know, and that's, that's, that's we, we kind of were familiar with the idea of headwinds, but in tailwinds, you get a, a wind behind you and it sort of blows us forward and gets us there faster. And so when it comes to how the Spirit of God is at work, the wind blows. What does that, that look like? I think right now, and, and I just want to go through this as I close, from these three realities into ultimately a picture of the headwinds and the tailwinds that we're facing as a movement and as Christians in the English-speaking Western world and beyond. So let's talk first about some of the, uh, the headwinds coming out of COVID. Um, the headwinds are pretty substantive and significant because they are, they are making it harder towards the advance of the gospel. So let me just go through them real quickly. One of them is shrinking nominalism. I know this may sound strange because it also could be included as a, as a tailwind, but one of the headwinds coming out of COVID is that every year there are less people in Ireland and the UK that identify as Christians. Now, Ireland, Poland, and the United States were always outliers to that. They always held their religiosity until just the last few years, and then they joined the accelerated decline of Christian identification. I'm, I'm Irish by heritage. My, my, my forefathers and foremothers came from a little fishing village. I can't quite say it with the Irish brogue, uh, but, but they're a little fishing village outside of Dublin. And, um, and, and so, so, you know, you always see Poland, Ireland, the United States holding the line, but they haven't now. But the UK declining 1%, 2% a year in the percentage of self-identified Christian. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Ed, those people aren't really Christians anyway. And, I, and, and I'm not, I'm not I, actually, I actually agree with you that a whole lot of people use the word Christian to describe themselves in a way that we don't use the word Christian to describe ourselves or others. We believe a Christian is someone who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, who's been transformed by the power of the gospel. For many people, Christian is a demographic category, something they, 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 they mark on a census form. But the reality is, is that most of the people who come to Christ in most of the churches represented here actually use the word Christian to describe themselves before they became Christians. Now, I know that's strange, but I want you to think about it for just a moment. And I've had to explain this many times to a secular reporter, and I, I can think of sitting down with a secular reporter from a national newspaper, and I... And she, she said to me, but, but you know, America's like, at the time, was like over 70% Christian. And I said, well, Kathy, we actually don't think all the people who say they're Christians are actually Christians. And she was just befuddled. She said, 
you just don't say, you're on our team, let's go? I said, no, actually, we think part of our job is convincing people who think they're Christians that they're actually not Christians <laughs> so they can become actual Christians. <laughs> and she just looked at me befuddled by this. I said, no, it's true. <laughs> so I know that you know that many people call themselves Christians um, are, are, are not, but at the same time, it's actually from nominal Christian population is where most of the conversions come from in most of the churches represented here today. Now, when we hear somebody who is a practicing Muslim who becomes a follower of Jesus, that's become something that we talk about across the whole movement because it's so unusual. Maybe occasionally someone who's an atheist, but maybe to find themselves as a Christian in early years and has come back. Uh, but, but, but the reality is, is as nominalism shrinks, we continue to lose, well, we've already lost our home field advantage where people were open and had a positive perception of the Christian faith and practice. Shrinking nominalism has some significant implications, not just in evangelism, but in the way people see Christians in culture in general. I just, um, I just came from Australia, as I mentioned, lived there, uh, lived there, I was there for a month. Um, and you know, book right now though, it's on every book table in Australia is by a Christian author. And it's, uh, it's, the title of the book is when, when We're the Bad Guys. In other words, talk about Christians who, who the perception is now we're the bad guys in culture. We see that, we experience that, and probably that's gonna grow as nominalism continues to shrink. So that's first. Also, the attitudes towards proselytizing. I use the word proselytizing intentionally because people don't want to be told that they need to change their beliefs. In fact, I think most people are generally okay with Christians as long as Christians would stop trying to make everybody else Christians. But the problem is we, we, we actually have a savior who said to us, go make disciples of all nations. Um, a, few, a few years ago, I wrote an article for CNN.com uh, and it was one of the most controversial articles I, I ever wrote. Didn't expect it to be. Um, the title of the article was, um, and it's, it's why your Christian friends keep inviting you to church at Easter. And they put it up on the front page at a Friday, Good Friday. And everyone was clicking on it, it appears. So they, they eventually promoted it from a link to the story, and then they promoted it to like the top third of CNN.com. And, um, and what I found out was uh, people who click on links don't always like the content of that link. <laughs> it's called hate sharing. And the comments section, wow, it was quite a lot. But I said in quite you know, nice terms, trying to explain to a predominantly secular audience, hey, listen, it comes from a good place. Christians just believe that, that there was Jesus who was dead on Friday and on Sunday, not so much, and they want to tell you about that. And they let me be pretty explicit about it in the article. And so I think a lot of Christians shared the article. A lot of non-Christians were really mad about it. But the reason they were mad, they actually, this happened on two occasions, is that they actually said, that Ed Stetzer, who wrote this article, was calling on people to harass them, to impose their beliefs on other people. So they started calling and tracking down and doxing my address and sharing my information, and, and my inbox was full, and people were calling the office. We had to say to all the staff, don't answer the phones on Monday uh, because all the, you know, all the voicemails over the weekend. But here's the thing. The world increasingly is intolerant of people who think they should talk about their faith in a world that values tolerance, talking about your faith is not something that most people are tolerant towards. That's a, that's a headwind. Also, uh, accelerating cultural shifts. Not everywhere in the world 
does the rise of secularism also simultaneously have a rise in more progressive values that push against traditional Christian values? But it does in most of the English-speaking Western world. And accelerating cultural shifts are causing people to have increasing suspicion on followers of Jesus. Now, I think that's an opportunity for us to live as Jesus called us to. Values of the vineyard have always been the kind of movement that would show and share the love of Jesus, right? Holding both of those as essential to the mission, gospel proclamation, gospel demonstration, right? There's a reason John Wimber's book was called Power Evangelism, not just power. So gospel sharing, gospel proclamation, and gospel demonstration. But here's the thing. The reality is, is that even as much as we want to be known as those who are caring and compassionate in our community, and many of your churches stood up, stood out, and stood in the gap in the last few years and showed what that looked like, still increasingly the cultural shifts causes people to push against some of what we believe. Now, this is our time. It's our time to stay focused on the things of God and to not compromise the teachings of Scripture in order to engage a culture that is increasingly hostile towards those Scriptures and their teachings. But that's a headwind. Another headwind is the image of evangelicalism. And as an American evangelical, I want to say you're welcome. (laughs) Because I recognize that a lot of that comes across the pond. But the reality is, is that image and those realities sometimes causes people to be skeptical. But here's the thing. I'm encouraged because there are some substantive tailwinds right now. And here's the thing. This is part of my problem. I've read the end of the book. I know Jesus wins. So I'm perpetually encouraged. But I would say to you that, you know, as a missiologist, I've been doing research on church and culture for, I guess, for two decades now. You know, I was a pastor for a while, church planner for a while, then became a researcher, still planted a couple churches when I was leading a research firm. Um, But when I look at the cultural moment that we're in, and when I hear stories, can I just just say to you, um, I I took a picture, and I'm going to tweet this a little bit later on. Um, When you were celebrating those church plants, that was so great. That was so good. Let me tell you something. What you celebrate, you become. And the more you celebrate church planting, the more church planting stays in your DNA. But then you went on to succession. Can I tell you, for a movement founded in the 80s here, well, in the, in the, in the, I mean, the vineyard actually precedes that, but the spiritual birthday of the vineyard, Mother's Day, 1980. Uh, for a movement founded in the 80s, those are important conversations to talk about succession. But not just to talk about it, but to celebrate it is a beautiful and wise thing. I don't know who thought of that, but I just want to affirm and thank you for that. I'm going to actually share that with others as I go from here. But so, so I've been doing analysis on church and culture for, for decades, right? Written several books on the topic. Um, um, but this is part of what I do in my job. Um, and so, but I actually think that we may be poised for this key moment for an advance of the kingdom of God in ways that are surprising, maybe even shocking. And there are some tailwinds, I think, help with that. Let's talk about them. First is a tailwind of spiritual hunger. Um, People have realized and are realizing that the modern experiment, that everything was going to get perpetually better, is actually failing. It's not working, right? We're, we're, you know, again, it was so fascinating being in Australia for uh, just a couple weeks ago. Everyone there just saying, just kind of waiting for the next war to come in Asia. 
It's just the assumption that it's coming, just like there's an unthinkable a war in Europe, just like there's a cost of living crisis, just as there's a fuel crisis, just as all of these realities, inflation runs unabated. All of these things were not things we were thinking about. Things were supposed to keep getting better. Remember all those resolutions in December 2019? I, I miss those. Um, but that's caused in people a spiritual hunger. Which leads to the second thing is part of that. It's just the failure of the modern experiment. The failure of the modern experiment. When the world was supposed to get better, people were supposed to get along. Instead, what happened? We see a rise of nationalism. We see a rise of division. We see political division, economic struggles and troubles. And it probably is a few years before that'll settle down. They do tend to settle down, right? I mean, the 60s eventually became the 70s, right? And the cultural turmoil and turbulence, turbulence and tumult of the 60s kind of resolved by the time we got in the early 70s and we got disco, so let's hope that doesn't happen again. <laughs> amen, I heard that amen over there. Oh. But the failure of the modern experiment leads people asking, what next and what now? Um, another tailwind is that deployment for mission. Remember when I mentioned a few minutes ago how we saw uh, a, that front third of the church stand up, stand out, and stand in the gap? See, this is an opportunity for us actually to normalize that. You know, for years, as someone who wrote on the missional church, I would write, the church has got to leave the building. I, I did a whole series on the churches should leave the building, and then one day, every church in the world did. <laughs> that sermon series seems a little strange now, but I, I wrote a whole book called Viral Churches seven years ago, and in hindsight, that title has not stood the test of time. <laughs> It was about churches going viral and multiplying, right? Tended not to stand the test of time. My friend Mark Middleberg has a book called Contagious Christianity, so I don't know how that fits into there either. So here's the thing, right? But that deployment for mission, let's normalize what that looks like. Let's say to the people who've gotten more engaged and more involved, the front third, and say to them, hey, let's engage that second third and have them step out, have them engage in mission. We believe the kingdom of God has broken into the world. We join Jesus on mission, so his name and his fame would be more widely known. Let's take that deployment for mission, get the second third more engaged and more involved. Let's go find the back third and then engage them with the good news of the gospel, call them to walk a spiritual life, and then engage the community and ultimately the world. That's an opportunity that's before us. But I'm presenting, not preaching. And lastly, and I'll close with this. You know what it means when a guest speaker from America says, I'll close with this? Absolutely nothing. Because like, what are you going to do? You know? Um, <laughs> but I've said it throughout. With tumult comes opportunity. Again, I don't really know the future, but it appears that things are not resolved and the turbulence is not done. And we don't know what that means in the coming years. But what I know is that in the past, in times of turbulence and tumult, the gospel has advanced. It's a strange thing. I want to pray for the health of my nation. I want to pray for the health of your nation. But I also know, the nations represented here, both Ireland and the UK, but I also know that when we go through difficult times, the Lord uses it to draw men and women to himself, to sharpen the focus of churches and their ministry and their mission, 
And when the church, not every church does this, not every church grabs a hold of this and says this. Remember that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was on the fringes and on the margins that the revival came. In the 60s and the 70s, it was on the fringes and the margins that the revival came. On the 80s, it was the fringes and the margins that the revival came. So we want to see what the Spirit is doing, see what Jesus is doing, and join him in his mission. Sisters and brothers, I believe that God has a plan. And he has a powerful plan for the vineyard churches in Ireland and the UK because he's placed in you the DNA that, and again, again, that aligns with the mission of God and the kingdom of God, but also with this cultural moment in ways that other movements do not. Do not miss what the Spirit is doing. Take that moment, recognizing that these tailwinds are opportunity to make much of Jesus. So my prayer for you is that the vineyard will continue to be the movement that God has used, but he might use you exceeding abundantly beyond all that you might ask or think. Thanks for the opportunity to share and to encourage you. Let me pray for you. Father, I come before you and I thank you for what you have done through this community of churches called the Vineyard. Father, I thank you for their influence in my life decades ago and moments ago. Father, I pray that you would remind them that the moment we're in does not pause the mission we are on. That would you cause them to ask with discernment how they might plant more churches. John talked about more, how they might do more ministry among the poor, how they might see more of the next generation deployed for ministry and mission, how they might see more people discipled, how they might see more missionaries sent out. Lord, may you give that vision of more a boost of your Holy Spirit power that in the midst of the turbulent and tumult of this moment, we might respond as Isaiah responded in a tumultuous and turbulent time centuries ago. We might say, here I am, Lord, send me. I pray for this movement. I pray for these pastors. I pray for these church leaders that they might say, here I am, Lord, send me. Would you just say that with me as we close? Here I am, Lord, send me in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an amazing message, amazing worship. And we serve an amazing God. And so as we wait on him to hear what he has to say to us, we're going to say goodbye to those who are online. Say thank you for being with us. And trust that you got, God spoke to you through um, Ed Stetzer this morning. And so we're going to wait on the Lord now, hear what he has to say to us, and then minister to one another out of what he says to us. So if you've got something to share, come to the front, share it, and... Uh, who hear and respond to that. So goodbye to those online. Thank you for being with us.